0: Welcome to Syntalk. The Syntalkers around the table today discuss the eras and epochs. We'll think about eras, epochs, and periods of people's past. What leads to eras and what separates them? Why are we always breaking down time? What comes after what? Are there gaps in history or in our memory? Are there near distinct phases, even if history is continuous? Does conception of time play a fundamental role in how we think of the story of civilizations? Can very slow, imperceptible changes cause history? Are all periods retrospective Are all transitions catastrophic? Can periods ever be universal? Must all great civilizations be great economies and exploit certain technologies? Can history be set in motion at will? And what is the long-term future of eras? We are pleased and privileged to have two SYN Talkers with us here today. Dr. C.B. K. George. He teaches philosophy at IIT Bombay. His area of interest is continental philosophy. And Professor Somitra Sharma. He is a retired professor of economics at the University of Pulai in Zagreb in Croatia. He has been interested in philosophical foundations of economics. So, uh, Sibi, why don't we set the ball rolling with you? Um, you know, there is this instinctive um, urge to split time up, split past up into into different eras, epochs, phases, whatever one calls them. Though technically, obviously, they have different uh, resonances. Why do eras occur? I mean, do they have an ontology, or they are just an artificial construct that we? that we put on the time behind us for analytical purposes or, or some, maybe the truth lies somewhere in the, somewhere in the middle of those two conceptions. What are eras? How do you conceive of them? And why do they occur? From a philosophical standpoint, obviously.
1: When we speak of eras from a eras and epochs, from a philosophical standpoint, the first conception that comes to my mind is that of Hegel, and Marx, mm-hmm. they consider history as developing in periods, in eras, and these eras and epochs have certain uh, cohesive form. So history develops in stages, and there is a telos according to them, which guides history. So an endpoint. At an endpoint, uh, it's an endpoint. It's a goal. Is it is it so by telos, do you mean an endpoint or is it direction? It's a direction, but several philosophers later have criticized Hegel, for example, saying that there is an endpoint which is also there at the beginning. Right. So that way it, There's something it's something predeterminate about the march. Mm, though many Hegelians would disagree, mm-hmm. they might say the end is itself a process, it's mm-hmm. dynamic.
0: So what what is the underlying process at work, Sibi? I mean, you know, one can conceive of it this way or that, but why? what's the guiding idea behind this? Why does it move the way it does? I I know we are in the analytical realm just now, but what what
1: happens here? Uh, Hegel thinks, for example, that the spirit, which is subjective, at the same time, which is intersubjective, So, you mean spirit as in human spirit in general. Human spirit. Mm -hmm. But it's beyond human in the sense that it's beyond the subject. In fact, in one place in the phenomenology of spirit, Mm -hmm. Hegel says, an I that is a we, a we that is an I. Mm -hmm.
0: So, there is some kind of a merger of the the individual and the collective.
1: Collective. And there is an idea of increasing human freedom and its achievement. Therefore, there is a progress from less free to more free. So there's a march of the spirit, which is achieved through history in a concrete way. Mm -hmm. And you know, there there are agents, there is an agent who is geist for Hegel. Mm -hmm. But for Marx, the agents are classes which are in conflict. Mm-hmm. in terms of their relation to forces of production. Mm-hmm. And they come into conflict and create history in that process.
0: Mm-hmm. So what, what would these eras be, see, be uh, from, from a somewhat Hegelian standpoint? So these eras will be... Uh, um, did he go to the extent of splitting it up? Did he label or he kind of left it at the metaphysical level?
1: He labeled them in the sense that, for example, the modern era is very sure, the Enlightenment. In mm-hmm. fact, he thought that is something like a... Dynamic teleological end of history, the Protestant German worldview.
0: So the, it was a culmination of sorts. It's a him.
1: culmination, right?
0: So um, and so, what 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 preceded it? Of course, one can just keep it all under the bucket of pre-modern, but there are stages there are, in, and phases. In phases Hegel, there.
1: I'm not too sure, but in, for example, in Marx, mm-hmm. there are there are there's the pre-modern era. There's a feudal age. There is the capitalistic age, which has to be overcome through uh, uh, the struggle of the classes and the ultimate time of the classless society.
0: Right, right. And Professor Sharma, I think CBS has brought in Marx into this, right? And uh, so, I mean, just very, very cursorily wearing the economic history, economics hat, um, How how does economics get mixed into how we think of human world and human civilizations in general.
2: Let me make first a basic remark. Right. Uh, This division between epoch and era Mm -hmm. is purely an analytical scientific approach. It's an intellectual construct. Intellectual construct. Now, it has got its foundation in normal human reasoning humans make things uh, dissected, and they try to understand, in, uh, to understand it better. So that is the reason why we do that. And as far as your... Uh,
0: but there is... Clearly, Professor Sharma, it is not entirely arbitrary. So if, if, if one is splitting up 10,000 years or 5,000 years, one can pick a time frame. It's not like you can draw a line anywhere and say it's this or that. Naturally, it
2: is not drawing a line. But if you are comparing a long period, now as history itself, human history is a long history. And if you just put it on a a time scale, then you will find the curves, long-term curves, which are thousands years old, and then there are the shorter terms, and so on and so forth. So if you can... uh, if you look at one era, one age, there are so many, uh, uh, one age which has got many eras and they differ in their quality, in their... Uh,
0: so, but I think even Sibi made the point about there being something cohesive about an era, something cohesive about an epoch. So clearly there's a common thread.
2: The, the
0: Analytically, co- again, yeah. of course, nobody yes, knows that it, while the, it's happening.
2: The uh, common thread is based on the human... Uh, human spirit; they, it can be uh, dissected further as, uh, say, pure, pure thought, f- pure economics, pure religion, pure technological brain, and so on and so forth. So, human mind just creates various visions of the same era. And how does one, um, if, in keep, if we keep this aside,
0: Professor Sharma, and think of it purely? and there's no such thing as pure, so one gets it. But from the economic lens, is there a way of doing two, three rough eras before before the modern, before the industrial?
2: Uh, I think as far as my, my knowledge goes, in the past history for, let's say, let, let's say until the new age after 1500, uh, human mind have, changed into more economic uh, reasoning rather than it used to be earlier. because So that's be- the
0: birth of the homo economicus, the economic homo man. Homo
2: economics is the result of this change. Of
0: course, it's not, uh, it's not so the driver of the But What in
2: fact was that human beings did not have many wants. Mm-hmm. And wants is the generator of, of economic reasoning, economic thinking, and so on. So since your wants are limited, economics as such didn't exist. Where is want in this
0: spirit? Where is this want? Because I think Professor Sharma is making a very interesting point. You know, so when somebody like Hegel talks about the march of the spirit or the progress of the spirit or the gradual freedom of the spirit, um, is the spirit somewhat... Is its identity the same or does it change? Because, you know, as, as Professor Sharma is pointing out, even our wants, our desires change. And whether it's I or V, whether it's the individual or the collective, that is different at different points in time.
1: See, um, Hegel is speaking at a very, you know, abstract philosophical level. Fair, of course. And and, <laughs> <laughs> and he's, into, I mean, that's why he's famous for introducing this, you know, concrete history into... At a level of abstraction. Right. So, he, in fact, that famous re- remark about the owl of Minerva flying at, at, dusk. at dusk and capturing the era uh, in thought. So, and he, he thinks that it Which is... Which
0: is broadly to say, Sibi, that a lot of these uh, phasing is retrospective. Yeah.
1: Right. It is retrospective and only when an age is... is on the vein, vein. when it is dying, that, you know, real abstraction of its spirit is possible. Possible. Now, what is the role of the desire and the want in this whole, you know, consideration of the era? And and I, I want to introduce another thing. I think Hegel's idea is that when an epoch takes its full shape, it is something like an idea that seeps into everything, everything that we do, whether it is economics, whether whether it's religion, whether it's sport or whatever, we are getting a, a kind of frame within which we operate in at all levels. So it's the master envelope. It,
0: it, it's every, the master. Yeah. Everything is within it. Within some, it. In some some mm.
1: shape or form. So human desire itself is is in a way driven by the spirit of the era.
0: So I mean, and and so Professor Sharma, this is a great point, right? So for example, when you say that human desire or human want underwent some kind of a change, what well, drove
2: it? I I will make a difference between desire and want.
0: Fair enough. As the an economist, you should desire.
2: <laughs> is simply an aspiration, a feeling for procuring something or getting somewhere. But as far as want is concerned, Scoupled It's coupled with more, action. It is, it's, it's more active. Yeah. The, your body needs that. You know, it is. while the desire is the product of uh, brain, it's The intellect of the mind. Want is the desire of body. I want food because I am hungry. That is the reason. Uh, now, as far as uh, wants are concerned, uh, wants, I mean, various philosophies, ascetic philosophies have taught us to reduce the wants and get to a higher a spiritual world.
0: I think the question, Professor Sharma, is that if we say that in the last five, six hundred years, or some sometime in that period, At least economic man, the economic animal, the homo economicus, there was some kind of an emergence of that, retrospectively perceived. That's fine. Why? Why did it happen around that time? It was obviously not some philosophers writing an essay. There was was something in the time, at that point in time, which led to it,
2: maybe. Uh, Again, as an economist, I see people's uh, enhancement of knowledge perhaps brought new elements to the development of the so-called concept of economic man. Earlier, there was very rudimentary form of trading and business relations. So but, did
0: this have to do with new trading routes, but, new trading partners, yeah, um, I mean, new encounters? As,
2: as the civilization progressed, there were more global contacts of people. Right. And this knowledge in general, created uh, various kinds of wants. For example, in Europe, nobody knew until the Dutch occupied Indonesia black pepper. <laughs> and black pepper was sold in the so-called apothecas or the pharmacy.
0: Apothecaries. Yeah. By, by the apothecaries.
2: Once they started importing it, it became a very popular product to be imported. So, what I mean to say is that enhancement of knowledge is basically responsible for increasing the wants. In a sense, uh, Professor Sharma, the wants
0: grew because the world grew.
2: The world grew. And the fact is that the population of the world after 1810 has increased sevenfold. (laughs)
0: That's a great point.
2: now wants are enormous because there are enormous people. There are and more people it's to a, want. <laughs> it's a fun, fantastic prospect for economics because economics is always based on the size and the capacity. The size of the consumption uh, class. So, yeah. uh, uh, I mean. Entrepreneurs can make more profit by increasing the size of production. So this is what has happened is there, since 1500 onwards.
0: About is there an epochal year for you? Is there an epochal year for? Is there a milestone year for Hegel? Which, no, no, no. But so he he's obviously not not going to be that specific.
1: Yeah, but hmm. no, I I want to say that. Hegel is not the only philosopher, you know, we are sure. speaking about in terms of, of the era. There are certain problems with this. So, you know, there are philosophers who came later, especially in Germany. You know, the, the idea of the epoch is very German. Mm. You know, it, it came with Hegel, it came with Marx. You know, of course, there are precedents like the, Christian, the Judeo-Christian idea of, the, of eschatology, of, of the apocalypse and so on
0: but that has to do with things like salvation
1: and that, afterlife yeah. so. but then you know philosophy takes this is the abstraction that happens yeah there has it's to be a, something transcendental transcendental in the and it takes the religion etc into an abstraction and and you know applies it at certain at certain level and in fact if you read the phenomenology of spirit of hegel there is there are these steps in the march of the spirit where mm-hmm. religion is one and he privileges the Judeo-Christian ethos, which becomes, at certain level, the Enlightenment period. Right. Later. Right. But the problem with all this is very much the idea of progress, mm-hmm. which later philosophers came to question. Such as. Such as Heidegger, Nietzsche before Heidegger. Right. Foucault after Heidegger. All these people.
0: And what's what's the what's the what are one or two signature counter moves against this idea of progress?
1: Of course, for for Nietzsche, we do not know. He he was the counter enlightenment figure towards the you know towards the end of the nineteenth century. For Heidegger, we know, you know, he he was someone who was speaking uh, during the war times, and he was you know for a time uh, um, um, a Nazi figure who registered himself in the party and who was uh, looked upon as as someone who went against the enlightenment spirit he had he had to give an explanation for that and he did and but you know both
0: both uh, both heidegger and nietzsche are metaphysicians they're amazing metaphysicians so for example for nietzsche is there nothing but metaphysical about the way history moves and time moves or his conception is different is he rejecting any kind of meta-history at all, or what's the case?
1: He's rejecting a meta-history of the Hegelian variety. For example, according to him, although there are epochs and eras, there is there is no telos which is guiding it, one, and there is no spirit which is overlooking history.
0: So is there something else in its place, or it's just... Uh
1: it is it is very much the aleatory, the chance. So the, it's, the, it's all the, chancy. The, yeah, it's all chancy. It's the play of the... It is a play more than, you know, a design which is working in history. Hmm. For Heidegger... So
0: it's a fundamentally different conception.
1: It's a fundamentally
2: different conception. So, for example... Is
0: economic history chancy?
2: Well, uh, uh, let me make first a comment about the philosophers. Philosophers are... Lonely people. <laughs> and they think too much, and their thoughts are dangerous for the society. They are unwelcome, and even Shakespeare in Julius Caesar says, mine Cicero, he's a lean and thin man, he thinks too much. So the fact is that the philosophers are not likable people because they speak out their mind. All the philosophers, current and past, have contributed immensely to the development of thought. But it is in the realm of virtuality not practicable enough.
0: I think the question is whether there are... I think the fundamental question we're grappling with, Professor Sharma, is... Whether there are phases to the way various human civilizations, even if we don't have to, we don't have to make a total out of it, no. have moved. That's the question now. Whether or not Nietzsche or Hegel think of it this way or that, I think that question remains a semi-empirical, semi-factual question.
2: I mean, any uh, I would put it this way: anything that moves requires a force, energy, and what was the energy? Energy was thought and resources. Fair enough. Resources are economic, financial, and thought and idea which got into, translated into, uh, so this is how the civilizations have moved. Some civilizations have made dramatic moves in in their history. They progress faster than other civilizations who didn't make such moves, and
0: so for you, Professor Sharma, in the way you articulated, there would be a greater emphasis on the role played by technology, by resources, as opposed to something relatively more. I and mean, again, that's yeah. meant to be abstract. Yeah. Nobody's claiming that as that that being the see, only narrative.
2: So lately, I have developed this uh, idea that technology is an inborn element in in every aspect of, of our life when I say technology I do not mean the advanced or sophisticated technology but technology in some terms of uh, an artifact. way of creation sure so if a human being is a creative mind he also has the instrument to give form to his creation sure and this is where technology is involved the better and sharper the mind, so is better the product and the product. Now, what the how the Japanese, for example, are advancing in the market by producing new uh, gadgets, they are refining the process of making it. They are not so great inventors, but they are good at miniaturizing and creating a quality product. So what I mean to say that mind is something that controls practically everything. The more intellectual spirit is present in the society, the society will progress further.
0: Where would the economic historian and the economist in you be on this notion of progress? And the fact that if you we were to think of human history very broadly put in a 2000 year time frame Uh is there
2: some kind of an upward curve or Uh, I'm slightly frustrated with the my friends colleagues economists no
0: I think that's that's, this is not about economics Mr. Sharma I think the point is that if we look at time if we look at human history not even history because it's not a historical question that much but when you say that as we become more intelligent intellect you use notions of innovation invention is there some kind of improvement of of something general at the level of the collective, which is the which is to say, in an, another way, is there progress?
2: Yeah, uh, well,
0: it's a philosophical question whether or not we like
2: it. P- progress is a collective, uh, or says, summation of individual uh, development or progress. I see that the uh, society will progress only if there is a collectivist spirit. But unfortunately, we are finding there are more individualism than there is a collectivism. Something is good for the society. You don't get enough support in the everyday life. But is that is that a
0: remark about the current here and now, or is that a remark about Human history and is that no, an anthropo- in, in anthropological general, point? In general,
2: in general, you know, there there had always been philosophers, prophets, religious leaders who propagated ethical values, but nobody bothered, and therefore the civilizations have gone in the past, and they never never recovered. What would the um,
0: because if we have this notion of progress, which which some of the names that you mentioned, Hegel in particular seem to have had again he was in a way referring to a very very local place. It was not about human history. I mean he may he can arch it out all the way from the Greeks and come to the Germans in a
1: span of No, he had an idea that the spiritus mo- spirits march is from the East to the West. Right. Yeah. So he had that idea. But other than that so what what's the question about the progress? No, I
0: think the question is that Okay, so if that's how you think of progress, then there's something spatial about it as well. It's going from one society to another. So in that sense, uh, the spirit obviously is a metaphysical kind of entity. Um, but clearly, if you look at empires, we look at civilizations. There is no such thing as infinite progress. You know, I mean, Roman Empire goes up, goes down. It's Sumerian civilization goes up, goes down. Uh, Indus Valley civilization goes up and down. Or they could be accidents of history, but there's no such thing as, in, in specific instances, there's no such thing as infinite progress or f- progress whatever. So then this progress is some other kind of progress. At what level is that? It's a
1: progress of reason for Hegel. It's mm. a progress of human freedom to that extent. But it's a later philosopher's question that if if that were the case, for example, the the what happened in but the are there
0: historical people for them at all? Are they collective? or for Hegel? Let's say for something like Hegel or
1: for historical people are for for Hegel the Germans the Westerners as a collective they are historical. For for India for Hegel is a historical people. Hmm. But for for the, the later philosophers, question is whether the telos is 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 something real or whether our explanatory frame should be something like play or whether we are projecting this design retrospectively on history Mm. and and we are using a kind of causal reasoning rather than looking at history history in 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 a a philosophical way in its in its truth in the way in which it unfolded Um, for example let's take heidegger Mm. heidegger has heidegger has this idea that the epochs they they are not simply historical, but they are each epoch is actually about an understanding of being, according mm-hmm. to it. An understanding of being is 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 an intelligibility frame. On the basis of which everything else is made sensible.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So an epoch is actually a frame of intelligibility, rather than mere events that happen in history. Mm -hmm. So, he speaks of several epochs. For example, the the early Greek Epoch, the Platonic Epoch, the Christian Epoch, the early modern, and the later modern one. For example, the later modern epoch for him is a technological epoch, where everything is understood in a calculative way as a resource for machination or manipulation. So in a way
0: somewhat similar to what Professor Sharma was pointing out. Um, is that somewhat coterminous with this with this uh, economic man?
1: It would be. But for Heidegger that economic man is a, a production out of out this, of. this As understanding to being the of the driver. Yeah. Rather than it being the driver. So what is this understanding of being of the late modern era? It's it's a kind of a calculative understanding of, of everything. It's a formulaic understanding rather than, let's say, early Greeks understood everything as emerging naturally. Mm. The Christians understood everything as emerging because because of a subject who is a God, mm-hmm. who is God, the Christian God. Whereas the early modern the epoch understood everything as emerging out of a subject, mm-hmm. a Cartesian subject. Mm-hmm. But in the later modern era, all these distinctions collapse between the subject and the object and there are only resources for imagination. And the subject himself or herself becomes a resource. We speak of human resource today.
0: So there's a collapse of sorts.
1: There's a collapse of sorts.
0: So who's the driver now?
1: There's no driver.
0: So there's there's some kind of autonomy at work? Uh, like, so Because I mean, resources don't reorganize themselves. But I know you made human beings as as subjects in this and not subjects I mean they are they are they are enabling this march as opposed to being the prime agents
1: they are they are the paths or opening within which this play of history takes place rather than they being the agents and the drivers in Heidegger's imagination because they are also post-human thinkers they are Mm. thinking that that it It is a product of modernity. Foucault also thinks similarly. It is a product of modernity, early modernity, you know, Renaissance period to think of the age of man. Man, the human being, humanism is a product of those times. Right. And, and when, when the human being became the center of history, center of everything, center of science, etc. So this is what they want to, you know, disavow, put away. And they want to think that it's not, it's not an individual subject or the subjectivity of man or the human being which is at play. But reality is showing itself at certain historical moments to a certain historical people in certain ways. And in their language, it comes to articulate itself.
0: So, are we in the post-human era today? Post-human epoch? What, what is it? I mean, the labels don't
1: matter as much. But where are we today? So, for uh, Heidegger, for Heidegger, he, it's not that we are in the post-human era, but there was an era where, where, and probably we are still in that era. But he is giving an articulation of of you know thought, saying that actually we have mistaken in thinking that we are the center of of the organization of history and the movement of history. He is trying to say that we are not. We are. You know, articulators of what is emerging. So for him, there are no sharp or discrete historical agents. They are rather, you know, players who are participating in in an understanding of being. So for him, everything that happens within, even revolutions within a particular understanding of being or historical epoch, is actually, you know, we we are we are used by what is happening rather than we are being the revolutionaries in, in the sense of, an, uh, of being an agent
0: that's so interesting so what, what so for
1: example one example I can give that we t- today we are in an ecological crisis we say and there are several solutions which are coming out for Heidegger and he had articulated it that many of these solutions are actually playing into the epoch and its formula rather than trying to get out of it so we think of you know green uh, economy, green use of resources. We we think of you know, we think of still in the resource paradigm rather than getting trying to get out of it.
0: But how can you get out of it?
1: So, um, we, that will require an an understanding of the transitions for for these people for for Heidegger for Foucault for Nietzsche for Heidegger I will let me so tell you So that's the
0: ultimate question that are we the I mean so yeah that's the tension in a way right are we the ultimate subjects or we are being played by whatever the forces might be so what separates these eras what what leads to now whether or not the transitions are sharp or not whether they are catastrophic in going from one revolution to another what separates these eras Mr. Sharma <laughs> I think I, I know you mentioned that these are intellectual constructs. One yeah, gets it, yeah. but even if you analyze it,
2: looking backwards, then they, then they, there are some material forces behind it, and the material forces are uh, the human spirit to acquire more space, more liberty, more or uh, freedom or more material wealth. This is what inspires human beings to... Uh,
0: I think that's uh, well understood, Professor Sharma. The question is that if, when, for analytical purposes, we were to think of two eras, something separates the two eras. Something separates. What separates it? Is it, is it an event? Is it, what what is it? What separates eras?
2: I I really have not <laughs> thought it I'm properly. But if I just uh, uh, make a reference, it is it is the com- uh, communal feeling or a spirit that creates immediate immediate breakup. If I think something and people are convinced with that. Then suddenly, the movement, why there are strikes, why there are revolutions, why there are uh, demonstrations? Because the cause was real and people get attracted. Sometimes even without a cause, you have a... But the fact is that some events lead to some uh, human behavior to show their dissatisfaction or with the current state of affairs in the society either it is social or it is political but they do want to show that they are not with them and this perhaps makes this separation
0: but are these i know you use the word dissatisfaction so any transition from one era to another is, is it, it is it i mean is it only revolution separating them only catastrophe no. separating I, them i would say no peaceful progress so uh, much from one era to another uh, one kind of good to a better kind of good
2: uh, I wouldn't say that I would just say that people want ordinarily some you say uh, relative peace hmm. anything that disturbs their relative peace makes them revolt against all those factors that have created that. And this is generally either social or political or religious or psychological. Psychological are minor individual problems, mostly religious, social, and political forces do create a atmosphere in which ordinary human being is disturbed. If I have a nice sleep, And somebody knocks at my door, it is a disturbance, and I get up, and I shout. So, exactly the same thing. Humans, by nature, want a peaceful life, and that is from Morning till the end.
0: Would would Nietzsche agree to this? <laughs>
2: not at this all. guy
0: who <laughs> wants a peaceful life.
2: Yeah. Not at
1: all. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Again, I don't think Professor Sharma cares too much about whether or not Nietzsche agrees with the <laughs>
1: <laughs> But, but, but no, that, that, think that's good that
2: he believes so. In right. in in a uh, society in a civilization, any break has come. Uh, very rarely are there are natural breaks like earthquake, like uh, floods, like that. Most of these are a process of transition from one stage to another. Can
0: can these be, we we were discussing this a little while ago, can these be around very fundamentally radically new inventions? Like, for example, when the industrial age era, whatever we can... Current age
2: is showing that some... Phenomenon can take their place very quickly. For example, mobile phone.
0: Yeah, I mean the entire information age. Information
2: technology, and therefore, it is possible. But how long? At the same time, when at one time it has made communication easy, people are uh, getting fed uh uh frustrated also at the same time they do want to get rid of them uh, either these gadgets or the, the, the global contacts and so forth so I, I i think that the civilization So so you
0: professor sharma history is
2: continuous uh, or or look history by definition is a record
0: Yes, so history is different from... It's a record.
2: Yeah. Record of events. Yes, so it is... Happenings. What is happening today is recorded. I'm sitting here talking to you. It's a record. After 20, 30 years, you will check on such and such date, such and time, Sharma was here. So history (laughs) is a record. And it is continuous. Continuous in the sense that over the time, it keeps on recording. Now what happens is, for unforeseen circumstances, there comes to some event which brings or breaks the recording of the history.
0: So there are breaks in memory, not
2: breaks in So that's what I say. I have defined it as a gap in memory. Memory in the sense, collective memory. Sure. Not individual, individual memory. Suppose, for example, and at times it has happened that intentionally, fake history has been created to substitute real history.
0: Where are you on this, uh, Sibi? On transition. On transitions. What separates these eras Um, And it, it looks like so much depends on how things are recorded and what the collective memory is. And it's such a complex enterprise because there's something accumulative about it, right? I mean, it's every year you add more of the past behind you.
1: That is why the second conception of the epoch of Nietzsche, Heidegger, etc. is very useful. Yeah. Because it is telling us not about the... You know, records and the designs that we have formulated. Yeah. But how did they unfold? Yeah. And, and is the causal explanation too artificial? Is the causal explanation something that we have projected upon it? Or See, all these philosophers have an idea of the epoch mm, we can speak of as something organic. You know, epochs emerge gradually, they grow, they mature and they fade and die away. So that that is the metaphor of, of the epoch that they have in mind. Yes. Why they emerge? There's no answer. Why they die? There's no answer. But Heidegger, for example, speaks about the transition in terms of, you know, distress. Uh, when, when an age is mature, see, we also should not have... This I is want, distress in the sense of ennui, boredom, or... It's it's something which um, something with 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 which we are we are you know um, the intelligibility of the frame does not anymore look intelligible. I usually speak of as a crack which is developing within the intelligibility frame. Mm-hmm. So for Heidegger, the agent or the human uh, human self is always responding rather than you know creating so you cannot create history at will you cannot you think that you create history at will but always you're responding to history can you
0: create history at will professor Sharma
2: I, I think uh, it's a I, I will slightly differ with the, uh, our CB. colleague uh, creation is a uh, inborn instinct of human being
0: history creation of history not creating.
2: No, no. Like the, I'm just coming to that point. Sure. Creation is a inborn instinct. And by creating thoughts, people have created history. Mm-hmm. So it was first <laughs> in the human point. mind to do something which will make him great personally, with the self-interest involved. Say for example, why Egyptian Pharaoh went to destroy a well prosperous city of Megiddo in Israel? He drove practically a thousand kilometers to destroy the city. It was his idea that the trade that is being done from Megiddo to all the Mediterranean is undesirable. So, this idea led him to create an army and went, destroyed the city, burnt it, came back.
0: I think the question, Professor Sharma, is that I don't think anybody reasonable would say that you cannot cause events. Individuals, groups can cause events. I think the question is. People do cause
2: events all the time I think the
0: question is I mean again one can think of it a little bit more rigorously and differ or not differ from it but the question is that history is probably a bigger thing
1: do you know what I mean Sidi I know I.
2: everybody who is in a position of power either in economics or religion or philosophy he thinks he is the only God-gifted brain in the <laughs> world, and his idea must be uh, appreciated by everybody. And this has happened. O- this is happening. Again and again. This has again. happened all the time in the world history. So I would personally say that it is the personal whims and personal thoughts that have created history.
1: Yeah. Um, see, it is the frame from which we are looking at history. That matters. So for for the philosophers I am dealing with, the frame from which they are looking at history is whether the human being is the center of history or not. Mm-hmm. So when we speak of creation, for example, creating history, our image is a creator God. yeah, Especially the Judeo-Christian who yeah. creates from nothing. yeah. Whereas we don't, you know, we don't create from nothing. We have something. And we God have,
0: doesn't just create man.
1: God creates the world. God here creates the world. And the idea is that he creates ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, yes. So, see, um, so this is the level at which these philosophers are working. So yeah. they are trying to say <laughs> that, they are trying to say that it's not from within or from a subject that the subject also receives in order to, you know, react or respond to events that are happening around.
0: But I think one of the points that uh, Professor Sharma made is something that Nietzsche might agree with,
1: which is that there is a creative impulse. There is. There is a creative impulse. We, we have, you know, and the creative impulse, again, is not something absolutely subjective. Yes. That but you know we are participating in a linguistic world yes we create we,
0: ourselves also by participating we create even the
1: world. our identity through this through by we are we are born into a kind of a frame mm. an intelligibility you know which which is existing out there sure. an intersubjective world another thing i want to say about the transition is although heidegger thinks of the transition as you know driven by a distress a kind of you know a, f- a frame becoming no more intelligible for foucault and heidegger it's not distress so much it is play it is you know it's it's like you know a game which is going on it's it's a uh, it's a happy you know uh, thing that that but heidegger's point is when you think of the organic image of the epoch mm-hmm. when it is all going well so again we shouldn't understand that there is only one epoch at a time sure. you know one frame at a time
0: there's no universal period
1: it's a universal period. Sure. So, for example, in the West, when when uh, the when the modern epoch is operating, there is also the Christian epoch at the margin. Sure. But we should understand that even the Christian epoch is trying to make it's itself intelligible through the modern, the scientific, and so on. Very often, we can think of the Indian, the Buddhist epoch, the you know Vedic epoch, uh, and the later epochs, and how they coexist and so on. So I don't want to impose that there is only one way in which we should understand. We should take these as, you know... Uh, but the, so,
0: you know, I think the somewhat extended version of this more, more playful conceptions would be that is there, is there the future in the present or in the past at all? Or is it entirely, is it truly radical? Is, is the past, is the future contained in the present, in the past, in some shape or form? They should be, right? I mean, there is...
2: Yeah. Uh, I, have I know qu- these are very
0: abstract questions. I have
2: given quite a good thought about it. And uh, in last one year's time, I have come to a sort of a equation, mathematical forming. Yes. That past, future, and present where past is history, present is reality, and future is our dream, illusion, virtuality. And the future...
0: But what we dream of...
2: That's what I'm saying. ...is obviously that,
0: contingent on our reality a little bit, our past I mean, a little
2: bit. Present and future are created by the past. Mm-hmm. And the embryo, I have written a sentence about it, that the future is an embryo in past. In the
0: womb of the past.
2: Yeah, in the womb of the past. Why? Any event that creates uh, uh, any historical event is by circumstances that exist. Those circumstances are... Socio-economic in character, so you can't just erase by a rubber those existing circumstances. That sounds because
0: uh, entirely reasonable, Professor Sharma. Because in these somewhat playful conceptions, are these a causal conceptions? I mean, are there no causes? There are no or causes. There are no causes. No causes. Oh, <laughs> so this would be somebody like Foucault. It is. So 2,742 A.D. How, what happens there, or
1: what kind of a world that is is? Not that we cannot see. see these are narratives. These, are, these narratives. are narratives. We are retrospectively looking and we are attributing causes. But or whether it, we whether we can speak and and these philosophers disavow the language of causality. Right. So I mean they are legitimate. They I mean, for example why why suddenly. Uh, An epoch, see, in Indian history, Buddhist epoch. Yeah. It was, you know, a dominant, a royal framework, you know, patronized by kings, which was going on for a long period, several centuries altogether. Just disappeared. Why disappeared? In most of the Indian history textbooks, this is a riddle. Similarly, let's say, uh, 1000 AD, if we look at world history, many historians say that the West was the least of the candidates for, you know, for, for the being the driver...
0: leadership position that it has today. It has think. today.
1: So, so, I mean, this accidentality shouldn't be figure in history or in our conception of history is the question. But we can speak of concrete events and their causality and so on. That's a separate matter. Yeah.
0: No, that's, that's such an interesting
2: uh, point. Uh, 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 I... Uh, I slightly differ. I always say that the seeds of destruction of the present <laughs> and past are always, always present. Anything that is created is already containing a chip, how it will fall apart. Whether
0: I, I, Yeah, it's some, somewhat mechanistic conception, but how, what's your?
1: We are not saying that there is no cause. But we are saying we cannot speak in terms of absolute causality.
0: And is it the case that our human mind cannot comprehend the complex interplay of causes? So it's, 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 it's us who are incapable of understanding it. Or it is the case that somewhat ontologically
1: again, it is a causal. You know, there have I been mean, a critique of cause, you know, in philosophy, you know, you know, David Hume. David must, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Induction know. and yeah. so on So that's a yeah. long story But yeah. what Professor Sharma Speaks about as the future Being in embryo in the past Yeah, This is very much part of the In a sense it's very much part of the Phenomenological understanding Of Heidegger for example But at a micro level and at a macro level At right. a micro level for Heidegger The moment You as a you know as a as a uh, someone who has language and someone who thinks the moment you think and you are aware, you are throwing possibilities uh-huh. you you are projecting possibilities on the basis of a past. so you have you you want to take this sheet of paper. This possibility arises before you because you have a past you understand you so you have certain language of the paper and the pencil and so on. so the field
0: so, of potentials exist
1: exist. Any concretely you make and the moment you you come to take this paper this possibility was there as something futural which has not been realized you make in fact what you do is you make a future possibility on the basis of a past real in front of you right now in the present this is what at a micro level each moment humans do and everything whole you know all beings are doing this but human beings do for us. So for Heidegger, for us human beings, the future, as a, as a, as one component of temporality, future has certain amount of you know privilege for for us human beings, mm. because we are those beings who can project these possibilities and make them real. You know, in in we can say it can guide a, our actions. Guide our actions. This is happening also in history. Yeah. Because we are you know we are not agents, but we are the ones who articulate history. We are the ones who you know who who come to articulate realities, uh, uh, revelations in in our language and in our doings, in our in our actions
0: well, that's so interesting. I want to change tracks a little bit, Professor Sharma, and ask you this somewhat different question that are great civilizations and you know civilizations have gone up and down as we touched upon it a few times are great civilizations always great economies?
2: Not necessarily because great civilizations uh, I mean there are many criteria by which you can define certain civilization great or sure so if you look at the uh, so-called great civilization, as we have learned from history, all were not so prosperous. Mm-hmm. For example, Sumerians were very prosperous, whereas nearby Persians were not. Mm. What, what? you would you would Much, call very great difference? India was prosperous, so the Sumerians were trading with the Indians, not with the Persians, which is closer.
0: But Professor Sharma, would you call the Persian civilization, within quotes, uh, great? Well, so the question is not whether civilizations are always prosperous. The question is, are, are great civilizations also great economies?
2: I mean, I mean does, uh, does as a simple conjecture, it should be great because it created great events. I mean, what makes great uh, to a... Uh, Uh, layman's uh, mind, some symbolic presentation, some thoughtful creation, some uh, accumulation of uh, monetary wealth, so in terms of these three elements, if we look, we say Egyptian civilization was great uh, because awe-inspiring Luxor temples. We say Chinese were very great, because they have accumulated from trading and from the loot, an uh, enormous amount of monetary wealth. Then you have some thoughtful minds in certain countries. Uh, Greeks were great civilization, because they had Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle, what, and so on. Were they,
0: were, they, were they prosperous?
2: The Greeks. Uh, Greeks were not prosperous; they were relatively poor. Relatively poor, but they were. I mean, their geographical location was such yeah, yeah, that they had the strategic position, and on the islands they had sufficient amount of food available. Right. But since Crete is the cradle of civilization of thought, yes, they had uh, somehow supported. The, the greeks or so, so the greeks did not have an original culture as i said earlier also Aryans, greek and the persian are the same stock hereditarily but uh, now, uh,
0: professor sharma the accumulation of material wealth as you pointed out yeah. does it does it lead to making a civilization more resilient does it lead to prolonging the duration of an era um, yeah. Is there something? I mean, are we? Are we?
2: Would it be right to make a causal link between these two? I am not sure. For example, in the past, mm-hmm. China being a rich country, India being a rich country, financially for for many centuries. For right. many centuries, did not acquire. Extra territory, they did not invade anybody. No, that's fine. I think that's them. the imperialistic that, kind of manifestation. That mentality was not there. So, riches need not always create that sort of thing. Now, the civilization did prosper uh, for uh, their material well being because people living well. Indus Valley civilization was a typical example. People were prosperous, they were uh, making good agricultural.
0: So at a at a somewhat meta level, not getting into the particulars too much because that's a totally different area by itself, is it inevitable that all civilizations, empires will go into decline? I mean, I mean here, again, we're being very general. I realize uh-huh.
2: that. Uh, I'm obsessed with the uh, past civilizations. <laughs> all past civilizations have gone... Bust without fail. without now. Uh, in individual cases, there were different reasons, but the fact is that uh, the, the, it's a curve. It's a boom bust the, cycle, they, like yeah, the they economics. Moved, they they came to their zenith and suddenly, I mean, we do not have sufficient knowledge to analyze it, but we should somehow. But the, the, they itself. they started going <laughs> down. Hmm. Uh, they were brought down by those who created it. Those, I mean, in the, in a broader sense. Sure, sure. Uh, so, then then the idea strikes my mind, if I can create, I can destroy. <laughs> As a child, I create, you know, on the beach, a, a sandcastle, uh, and then I push it. Before going home, I just destroy it. I'll, <laughs> yeah. So, That's why,
1: if you think of the subject, Hmm. As the creator, that I am creating with, within myself. Hmm. And so I am the creator, I can also, you know, withhold everything. Hmm. I can create, I can destroy.
0: Or like you can create at your own pace, at will, in a manner
1: that you like. So, what's your point? No, the point is that the subject is not the creator. Yeah. Subject is also not the destroyer. I mean, if you, this is why causal reasoning is insufficient.
0: What is it in the nature of the world? Humankind? And you know, one has to be more and more general as opposed to being being more and more specific. That makes one order give way and another order take over, that sets decline. I mean, is there is there any way to even talk about it? And I mean why don't we spend the last five minutes thinking about this? It's it's one thing to say that there's no subject. Mm that it doesn't matter who the emperor was, the great pharaohs, they may feel that they're taking certain assertive actions. It leads to some events, but are they changing history? Who knows? But, you know, as as Professor Sharma has pointed out, if you look at civilizations over the last several thousands of years, no civilization has existed forever. You invariably go down... Now, I know Heidegger or uh, Hegel were not thinking of things in these concrete terms. But what is it that leads to, and I'm not suggesting, you know, the answer and you're just holding it
1: back. (laughs) (laughs) No. What's the way to even think about it? History, our idea of history, at least, we we speak of history and prehistory. Prehistory is a long period. Which of which we have lived long, durie, long So, we have no idea, we have no conception of it just because you know we are caught up in this you know uh, causal kind of reasoning. Um, so, there is no reason why an epoch cannot last for long. For example, Heidegger says, Technologies, the technological era is only beginning.
0: Mm. This was in the early twentieth century, huh? in in
1: 1955, to be precise. Wow! He tells his village crowd in Meskirch I don't know if I am pronouncing rightly, that technology is only beginning. What we see the airplane, plane, the TV, the films, uh, the the you know biological modern medicine, nutrition. What, what
0: anticipation, isn't it?
1: Yeah, what anticipation. So these are this is only beginning, and we cannot predict. How it is going to be was the statement.
0: Did he have an anticipation on the duration of no, what was no? Mm. The,
1: the, when you when he says that it is only beginning, but it began in the nineteenth century, two three one sure. at least uh, one and half, or let's say two centuries have passed since the you know early technological modern technological era. So um, he is actually anticipating a long and tremendous creativity. Mm. You know, in in the non-subjective sense. Mm. See, when I say non-subjective sense, for example, Heidegger speaks of gods. In one interview in 1966, he says, only the God God can save us. From the, you know, the distress of the technological era. Mm -hmm. Or epoch. By God, he meant, mm. it's like charismatic events. It could be a figure. It could be a figure, but the figure is not a subject. But figure is someone within which, you know, the distress of, of an era or, you know, achievement of an era is manifested. Right. Is, so, um, So the these are charismatic events or per people or writing or whatever. Or what is
0: a charismatic event? Such as what?
1: Uh, you know, such as what? Such as, for example, let's say the steam engine. I don't know if if, if if it can be called a charismatic event. But that is somewhere we, in 1784, we, you know, starting of the modern technological... Something
0: layer. that enchants
1: yeah. The whole. Yeah, see, I mean, after that, so many... this is not something which Heidegger said, but, you know, one can think of so many. Politically, we can think of charismatic events, like, you know, the... the um, the politically religiously we can think of many charismatic events death of jesus and the crucifixion and all that it's a charismatic event yeah it it the the modern indian state and then, uh, the uh, after the colonial the, the decline
0: f- of colonialism is
1: the emergence of the new state this is a charismatic event yes the whole freedom movement it's a charismatic so what's event. the
0: future what's the future professor sharma what's the future of the march of history was the future on the basis of what you've thought about how civilizations have come and gone, on the basis of your understanding of our nature, on the basis of the economic forces, you made this beautiful point about material wealth and material resources playing a somewhat central role to how things go. Um, at least some philosophers would seem to anticipate a very creative kind of phase ahead Um which does not necessarily need to be good or bad but there is something creative highly generative about at least something different different
2: what's uh, the future in in a few minutes by definition future means uncertainty but since i
0: but see, you mentioned that the seeds say, are there <laughs> i also
2: say that future is a embryo in the past we can foresee to some extent what do you foresee? The future. Now, and how can we do that? There is no mathematical formula for that. <laughs> but symptoms, which are all around us, these symptoms can be given some sort of a analytical name. Let's say it's uh, ecology. Let's say social system. Let's say economic. Uh, turbulence, and so and so forth. So all these factors could give us some lead what sort of future we should be expecting from us. Now, future can be divided, immediate future and long-term future. Let's
0: say 500 years out.
2: As far as immediate future, uh, I'm quite sure it's going to Uh, developed by explosive force. Very quick advances in certain segments of human life. But long term, I am rather pessimist, because the events that might take shape in the future world of growing competition, lack of resources, ecological contamination, uh, overcrowded earth, may lead to some severe conflicts. And as I said, the Creator is also a destroyer, Shiva. So when men would be convinced, or human beings will be convinced that the current position is unbearable, They will make dramatic changes because, as I said, nothing begins overnight. It will take time, but the process of change will bring, and I compare it with the growing onion. Outside uh, shell will be destroyed, and inside there will be a new born plant which will give you the product only. And, Professor
0: Sharma, when you say growing restlessness would lead to destruction, self-destruction of the current order
2: for the... uh, I'm quite confident about it.
0: And not suggesting you know it. It's not possible to know, but what's your anticipation of what might succeed? What might the subsequent era or epoch
2: be like? Subsequent era if at all one can think of a long-term future, perhaps intellectual minds will produce a new type of thought for the then existing human being who will follow perhaps different values if the man goes to a space and uh, comes with a new knowledge, perhaps that would change the whole structure of the human society.
0: You've used the word values a couple of times and it looks like the self-conception of humankind and our ethical, moral framework, it looks like you think of them rather distinctly in different phases. So whatever this subsequent era or epoch might be like, it looks Uh, like
2: I mean, as far as the value system is concerned, I believe it's all individual. You believe in the or a, a set of values or you don't believe it. It's just like believing in God or believing not believing. So I believe that the major task of the philosophical or intellectual minds and religious leaders and politicians is to establish a code of conduct, out of which every individual should draw inspiration and set his own milieu. Now, I'm born in a Brahmin family. I've been taught to do certain rituals because that is considered to be normal Brahmin behavior. But I don't do that. Why? Because I have no belief in it. So I must believe in the value system that has been provided. If I am a non-believer, that I should speak truth, I will all the time lie, because I will consider this is the truth. Fair
0: enough. What's so. the future, Sibi? We'll end with that.
1: The future. If you see, there are this one. Uh, there are two ways of thinking about it. One is what should be the future. From well, the, what what we—it's
0: not a normative question. It's not a normative question, question. A
1: normative question but um, for example, Heidegger thinks of it a little bit normatively mm-hmm. by saying that you you the, you know he believes that there is an original point, a finite original point for the West, at least Greece, mm-hmm. from which one line or stream has come, which has you know. Uh, which is developed in these different epochs in one particular line which is calculative, rational which has finally produced a technological epoch another another line which will produce another line of many epochs he, he thinks in terms of non-calculative non-formulaic kind of a, a, a thought he calls it not philosophy but not metaphysics but thinking Hmm. Well, you know, it will be poetic, it, it it will have something to do with poetry, you know, uh, attuned response to the world one is in, etc. But when we think of one charismatic event, for so example... So, more
0: aesthetic conception.
1: Yeah. One charismatic event which we are facing today is the ecological crisis, which Professor Sharma is rightly pointing out. Right. But I'm not sure whether we, how we are going to respond to it, because we have all these signs, and we are not responding anywhere close to the way in which we should respond. But for example, there are there are historians like Harari, who has written, you know, the uh, Sapiens and sure. Homo Deus, and his conception of the species itself is not that we have created artificial intelligence, but not that the artificial intelligence machines are going to take over us, but our body itself, you know, becomes like a cyborg.
0: We will become e- more
1: bionic. Bionic. So, and what will happen, he has a quite quite a dystopic idea of this future. So that's your future? No, i not, see, I have to, from the conception from which I speak, I have to say I don't know. Only... From the way in which... But you know, if we
0: go back to the framework and we'll end with this. Mm. So this is the distress that all of us experience. The uh, ecological distress or mm. the threat looming of... Mm.
1: And also from the way in which Harari is speaking about if we take him for, you know, something, uh, at least uh, something which has fair some enough. sense. Fair enough. So if we take that, then he also says that it is not that humanity is going to be harping on equality mm-hmm. this very idea of the uh, the uh, the cyborg human is going to increase inequality according to his but that's a new species almost uh but but you know there will be always who can use the uh, the the new technologies for ones you know enhancing one's body powers and who cannot yeah so, so,
0: it's not like class issues go away and no, the power no, issues no, go away? No, 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 nothing of that. In they, fact, they in fact get it, worse.
1: Could, it could get worse. Terrific. So, so I don't know, but we have other ways of I
0: procedure. I think we need a new kind of economics, Professor Sharma, when, when we become cyborgs
2: too. Uh, I think, yes, there will be t- some new type of economics for which they, at least I will not have to teach. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, naturally, economics is also a science uh, in a very limited sense. And as the circumstances change, new laws that would govern the future economy must emerge.
0: I think that's a good note to end this on. Thanks to both of you for making it. And we look forward to having you soon again. Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you so Thank much. Thank you for Thank inviting you for shab- us. Thank you.